Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Law and practice around adoption have changed dramatically over the years. It used to be a secretive process, almost don't ask, don't tell. The assumption was that it was in everybody's interests to leave the past in the past. But what heartache that caused for the relinquishing parents, but also especially for the children involved. To know your origins is to know your full story. Even if those origins contain difficult truths, the thinking today is that telling that story and confronting those truths respectfully and in an age and stage appropriate way that those are in the best interests of the child. This child-centred approach is called open adoption. That's where the child is legally part of the adoptive family, fully part of their family, but they do know their story as far as possible and, as appropriate, they have regular contact with their family of origin. Interestingly, this same philosophy of putting the child's needs first is driving a new discussion about when a court should order an adoption, when a court makes an order for the child's safety and well-being, saying that the door should be closed permanently on their return to their biological parents. You can imagine that having that discussion is a big deal, especially when you think about the lingering effects for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of the stolen generations. But the issue was raised during the week when the New South Wales government announced that it wants Parliament to pass legal changes that would mean birth parents would have just two years to be reinstated as primary carers before an alternative permanent home is made. The idea is to stop children from being left for years in foster care, possibly with multiple, multiple placements. Also in the last few days, a federal parliamentary committee recommended that adoption laws should become more uniform across Australia. And it said if that doesn't happen, the Commonwealth law should be strengthened, that adoption should become, in effect, federally regulated. Well, it's all complex stuff and indeed deeply, deeply emotional. But at the centre of it all must be the needs of the child, around which, if you were drawing a circle, you'd then place the rights and needs of the biological family and the adoptive family. And then in there is our responsibility as a community to those kids who are in danger. When does the law step in? Well, let's have a discussion about that with Sue Madden. She's the Manager of Foster Care and Adoption Services for Anglicare Sydney and Liz Byrne, Senior Program Manager with that same agency. And firstly to Sue, what drove the change in policy to an open adoption system in Australia? I think there's a recognition that um, no adoption um, where a child actually legally joins another family system would ever fully replace the child's first family. It doesn't, um, it's not helpful to sever those biological roots or those relationship roots for a child. And we see that the better outcomes for children are when they've had an opportunity to continue those relationships with their family of origin as well. So if these children are being adopted through foster care, there's already um, very clear plans for contact for those children while they're with their foster carers, that they will be having relationships and opportunities to maintain that original identity with family members through, you know, through visits, through um playtimes through exchanging information. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so that the, the actual identity for the child is still, it's not an, an either or that I belong to this family, therefore I have to sever um, all my relationship connections with my family of origin. I think openness allows for that child to maintain 
that sense of belonging um, and connection to both family systems. That's probably the main the main effect it has for the child. Um, yeah, that the there are there are relationships and people that will always be significant, and we're not wanting an adoption mm. to be a sense of replacing um, and eliminating mm. in um, from the child's understanding of who they are and where they've come from. Now, Liz, I, I imagine that in your work supporting families in those situations, that creates some dilemmas, doesn't it? Uh, we start um, right up the front when we're recruiting people to care for children in foster care or adoption and we're really honest about the expectation that this child has two families and that um, one family is no more or less significant than the other. And so the training starts at the beginning asking carers to critically reflect on whether that's something that they will be able to do in their own family home in their own family and if they're not then maybe they're not the right people to go through to be adoptive parents or or foster parents. Now recently with you uh, I met with some foster parents and we're Mm. not going to to name them or give the identity because we Mm. need to maintain the privacy of of that family but this was an interesting case where a couple with I think two two children had been fostering Mm. a child and then made a decision to go for the Go for adoption, you know the permanent mm. the permanent option. Talk me through what the what the process was like for them. So that um, young family, you're right, had two two children of their own, and then decided that they wanted to um, adopt a child or provide a, a home for a child through foster care. Um, they had that little boy come into their family when he was um, very small; he was under twelve months. Um, and they provided the day-to-day care for him. They established clear routines. They made sure that his health and and medical and emotional and educational needs were being met. Um, they maintained um, openness and curiosity in the family home about his birth family. As I, as I remember, his birth mm. family... Um there were complications uh, in, in the birth family. They couldn't care for him. Adoption then became the option. So the boy is now legally um, the child of the adoptive parents. But in this open adoption system, mm. there's um, complete access, managed access with the birth parents mm. who came from a different cultural background, adding another layer mm. of complexity. So what is this boy learning as he's growing up? Mm. So he's learning about his culture of origin and that's occurring through his contact with his his birth mother and his his birth grandparents. Mm-hmm. They're talking to him about their family of, of origin and language and cultural practices that are important to them. Um, he's also growing up in a family that's able to provide him um, with safety and security. Unfortunately, his birth parents weren't able to provide that for him when he was small. So by having an open adoption for this little man, he's able to find out about all of the important parts of his his birth family, about culture, about language, about customs, but he's also able to be kept um, safe and to grow up in a place permanently um, without fear of, of, you know, jumping around placements or having multiple placements, which is often um, a factor for children in foster care. They experience multiple placements over their lifetime. Yeah, so that's preferable. And uh, Sue Madden, this is the way that policy has turned in the last uh, 10 or 20 years in Australia. And there's a new focus now on looking at this again, because the number of children who go through multiple foster placements has reached, well, people are calling it sort of chronic epidemic sort of levels. But you hear about children that have had 
10, 20, 30, 40, 100 placements in their young lives. That That is completely not good for them. We know that already, don't we? That's right. The the needs of children are really are central to the to all the decisions that we're trying to make for them. Once they've entered the child protection system, there's been an acknowledgement that the care hasn't been adequate for them. But the care that we then offer um, for them in the in the care system needs to actually be really tailored to their developmental needs. The decisions have to be made according to those children's timeframes, and certainly that sense of stability that there's. Um, a sense of permanency and that um, the, the sort of needs that they come with can be properly addressed, that uh, that can all be achieved when there is that good planning for the child. We don't always have the options to be able to offer the right placement or to immediately find permanent placements for kids. But, um, you know, as we try to recruit more carers um, and we, we try to match those carers with the needs of the children so there's less um, less disruption for them. Now, I just want to dwell on the first couple of years of a child's life because they are the most critical, we know that, for their development. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the instability... Because th- the processes you're talking about are complicated legal processes. It's no mm-hmm. small thing to take a child from its parents. Mm-hmm. It's no small thing to try to find a permanent placement for a child. Um, but all yes, of that so has to be done with a sense of urgency, doesn't it? That's right. There's got to be timely decision-making around every step in the child protection and out-of-home care system. And there's, there are complex systems. It's a legal process for, for the children through the children's court. But there's also the need to explore whether there's... Um, you know, preservation with, you know, keeping, is, are there things that we could do as um, in responding to children that allows them to stay with their family? Are there things we can do to support that family and their community to have them restored to their care? Are there family members, kin, we call them, kinship options, who could be suitable caregivers so they stay connected to relatives? So we need to be um, working very proactively in very timely ways to explore those possibilities for children. Children, so they're not left in a system that would, you know, have them moving unnecessarily. Um, it's only when all those other options have been exhausted that we're then looking at, um, you know, permanency planning for them, where they may be with non-related caregivers who would be authorised foster carers. Mm. So that's how, yeah, that's how those steps are working. Sue Madden is with us. She's the manager and principal officer for foster care and adoption at Anglicare Sydney. Liz Byrne is also with us, senior program manager for Anglicare Sydney. The answer to this question is going to be, I, I, I feel quite sure it depends on the needs of the child but I'll ask it anyway is there a sense that a, a, an adoption is a better placement for a child than than foster care or is a is a more suitable long-term arrangement than a, than a foster care placement I think when an adoption order is made it's been assessed that it's the preferable order for a child it has to be established that that's what the, is the best thing for that child but overall although it is a case-by-case determination um, overall I think that the legal um, status of adoption does give a deeper, more profound sense of permanence and sense of place for children. Um, they experience that they have, um, you know, really been 
legally and permanently now um, part of a family and that that level of commitment and valuing of that child has been really expressed through that legal process by the foster carers. They have somewhere to belong. So I think it does, yes. yeah, I think it does mm. cement them um, with a stronger sense of belonging and I think that becomes a, a really helpful foundation and the basis for which they can work through a lot of the other emotional issues or other, you know, developmental challenges that they might be still to face. So I I've, um, you know, we, we for those cases where adoption is important, we do see those benefits for those children. Mm. And Liz, mm. in the uh, fa- in the case of the family that you and I were with uh, mm. recently, um, that little boy is growing up in in the full knowledge that he has been adopted, that he he belongs mm. to this family, but he also has a birth mother and he's part of her heritage as well. Um, mm. That's going to avoid all of those questions that have happened in the past about. Uh, you know, suddenly finding out at the age of 21 that you're adopted mm. or 19 or someone lets it slip mm. or, and then you go searching and so on. Are you finding mm. that it is a more satisfying arrangement? Is it always a more satisfying arrangement? Um, for Anglicare, um, so far, all of the adoptions that um, we've sort of supported through court, um, anecdotally, the children say things like, you know, exhalers are being tucked into bed. Oh, finally, um, nobody can come and take me away. When that had never been um, anything that we had ever suggested might happen for, for that child. But this this deep sense that she had this worry and now that worry has been taken away. So anecdotally, yes, we are seeing that children mm. are able to relax and to really... Um, do it as Sue said, which is to undertake the really hard work of resolving, um, you know, the trauma that they've experienced. And this issue of contacting, do you think that's relieved tension from the home? I think that it means that children are able to speak openly. So openness is a lot more than a family being able to make contact, be that face-to-face or otherwise, four Mm. times a year. Openness really is about an attitude that people need to have about... um, you know, it being a safe place to ask questions, to talk, to wonder, to be curious about um, what their family of origin was like and to feel supported to go and, and, and seek out that information without um, fear of, you know, hurting other people's feelings. And I think that being able to speak openly about adoption means that we're also able to provide the answers that, that, that young people often have. You need a script too, don't you? Uh, I remember when we were chatting with that family we visited with recently, um, they have a certain set of words that they use to explain to this young child why he's not with his birth mother. Mm. So one of the tools that caseworkers in our program use are are called life stories and that's um, a, a way of explaining to children the really difficult Um, story about the reasons why mum and dad might not be able to care for them anymore. Um, So that's making sure that the story is told honestly but in child appropriate language and we add to that story um, as the child um, develops and it's more appropriate for them to have a greater understanding of all of the complex reasons why mum and dad couldn't provide the care that they that they needed. So we we come to this rather controversial issue, I suppose. It really has to it really has to be talked out. We talk about the needs of the child and child centred policy making, and there's a shift to that. The as you said, the House of Reps committee has recommended a national framework, if not national legislation itself, on on adoption to to have common principles right around the country. But hanging over all of that is the stolen generations. 
And I note that in New South Wales in particular, where um, the government practice is is um, being legislated, where uh, after two years a parent loses the right to try to get their child back if, if, if they're in foster care, out-of-home care, Aboriginal communities are saying this is just another, this may become another stolen generation. How do you resolve that dilemma? I think it's very important for us to be aware of the, um, you know, to maintain our um, knowledge of the history of past practices, that that has to be ensured that in our in our thinking or any steps that we take, that we are not um, repeating the, you know, the poor practices and the legacies that have resulted from those. There has to be um, always consultation with Aboriginal communities and we accept that the Aboriginal communities do not see adoption in most cases as a suitable permanency outcome for children. So we're guided by Aboriginal placement principles and um, within within those principles there are very clear steps that have to be taken in in an order, a prioritised order, and that would include ensuring that every opportunity is given to that child to stay with their parents or be restored to their parents. The second would be that they stay um, you know, connected with their community and their, their um, community groups. Um, and then the third would be if that if they couldn't stay with community, that they certainly are with um, other Aboriginal carers or with an Aboriginal community um, that's, that's perhaps able to form supports around them. Hmm. So um, unlike the practices then, yeah. of the past where children were uh, taken against the parents' will and really in most cases their background virtually erased their identity taken yeah. away i think is one way of putting that um you're saying that the system as it acts at the moment is in sort of layers and it would only be in the very it would be an unusual case would it that a an aboriginal child was um was in the permanent placement of a family that had no connection at all to their kinship group yeah, unfortunately, with the percentage of Aboriginal children in the out-of-home care system, mm. there are children placed with non-Aboriginal carers, mm. but we have to work very actively with those um, Aboriginal community groups and um, through consultation processes and through engaging wherever we can with family and kin to make sure that they've got you know genuine connection to their culture and their community. So that's um, a priority in our practice with any of our um, Aboriginal children that are in our program and yeah that that's the way we're working case by case to try and ensure that culture is not lost in in the child's experience of being in the care system although it's obviously a you know a big point of disconnection for them from culture when they have been removed through yes. child protection concerns Liz in, mm. in supporting families I can see that that would be um, at one level an enormous challenge if you're looking after if you had if you had adopted um, an Aboriginal child and you were a non-Aboriginal, but it could also mm. be a source of great joy and learning, I would think. Absolutely. And any of the carers that I've come in contact with in my professional career who are caring for Aboriginal children say that they've learnt so much about um, the rich history of Aboriginal people in Australia um, and, and that it's been a great um, journey for them as a family mm. to come to really appreciate what the background of the child that they're providing the care for is. Well, we've spoken about um, 
We've spoken about the legislative framework. We've spoken about open versus closed adoptions. We've spoken about this difficult question of um, the history of adoption in Australia, particularly for Aboriginal peoples. But finally, um, I might ask you first, Liz, and then perhaps you, Sue. Uh, tell us why it's a great thing to do to consider adopting a child. Give, give a plug for why people should contact Anglicare and find <laughs> out about becoming adoptive parents. So for children who, um, because of their family circumstances, because of the, the abuse or neglect that they've experienced, can't remain in their family of origin, those children are best able to realise their full potential when they are in uh, a family that most closely resembles what a biological family would provide, um, you know, with parents and siblings and structure and, and routine and love. Um, and for that child to be placed in that stable and permanent home means that, um, you know, families in our community are raising young people who will be really valuable um, contributors to our society. Mm. And Sue? Well, I think, yeah, echoing some of what Liz has said, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for a child to have a, a, a caring home, family setting where they can um, grow to fulfil their potential, you know. Um, I think it's wonderful for, for carer families as they enjoy the delights of a child flourishing and to see them contributing to family life as a family member. Uh, I see a lot of um, rich... Uh, experiences for all family members through fostering and through adoption where they've all learnt and uh, you know adapted to their changing family unit and we see kids doing so well in you know when they do get to experience that what we've been saying the permanency and the stability from an early age it requires decisions being made in a timely manner but there are some um, fantastic rewards for those children and for the for the caregivers if um, if that's the option that needed for them. Well, Anglicare is just one of many agencies that you can contact if you want to find out more about um, the path of fostering and adoption. And I hesitate to say, if you want to change the future, then this is the most holistic way that I know of to do it, to foster or adopt a child and impact that young person. Well, mm. Liz, Sue, thank you so much for being with us on Open House. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Sue Madden. Manager of Foster Care and Adoption Services for Anglicare Sydney and Liz Byrne, Senior Program Manager also at Anglicare in Sydney. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.